Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Zivo Chen. Also here today are Boya. Hello. Eric. Hello. And I'm Hannah. Zivo Chen is an assistant professor at Westlake University. He received his PhD in biochemistry under David Baker and Frank DeMaio at UW, after which he was a Damon Runyon Fellow at Caltech and worked with Michael Elowitz. His work focuses on programming biology via proteins. He has received a number of awards, including the Robert Dirks Molecular Programming Prize. And outside of the lab, Zivo is an instrument-rated pilot and enjoys flying around in a small Cessna. Zivo, hi. Hi, thank you for having me here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so I guess I'll start with asking you, what made you want to program biology? And particularly with proteins, which from my perspective seems like one of the most challenging media to program. Right. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a very good question. So actually, I guess I started programming biology when I joined Eric Winfrey's lab and also Lulu Chan's lab back in my undergrad. I was doing a surf at Caltech back in, I think that's 2011. Um, and at that time, I was just fascinated by the field of DNA nanotech. You know, people can use DNA to make smiley face at the nanometer scale. So our project back then was to create a DNA robot that can throw cargoes on a DNA origami platform. And I thought that was pretty cool. But then one day I had this thought, you know, could this actually work in a cell? If you could program some kind of DNA robots that can work in a cell, it can be tremendously useful. But I was told at that time, or especially for, for our robots, it just cannot work in a cell because we need to have uh, thermal cycles. We need to put it in a PCR machine. We have to raise the temperature and drop the temperature for the thing to work. So, so we cannot conceivably have that platform working in the in a cell. So I talked with Eric, and I thought, you know, can we uh, instead uh, program those kind of interaction specificity into protein instead? Because we all know that protein function in a cell, and most of the cell functions are coming from proteins. And Eric told me to talk to David Baker. So that's when. I decided to, to pursue a PhD in the field of protein design. And also at that time, David's lab had this a very cool game called Foldit, where you could basically, you know, uh, by playing video games, uh, design proteins at the same time. So I was quite drawn to the idea of uh, designing proteins. And that gives us a way to actually program biology from scratch, right? So if you could design proteins with any structure, with any function, then you could use that as a so-called coding language to, to better program biology. So I guess that's the very long version to your question of how I got started in using proteins to program biology. So what exactly is protein design and how do you start to design a protein? Yeah, so protein design is really the reverse uh, function of protein structure prediction. So I guess you must be very familiar with a protein structure prediction, right? So uh, in a typical protein structure prediction problem, you're given a one-dimensional sequence. So that's a primary sequence for the protein, it's just different amino acids. And your task is to find the most possible structure for that particular sequence. And protein design kind of works in a reverse direction. You want to have a scaffold, that's the, the three-dimensional structure. And your task is to find a sequence that's most likely to fold into that structure. So that's the protein design problem. And the, the history in the, the Baker lab was that they were first trying to work on the protein structure prediction problem. And one day they re realized that protein design is really just 
the same question, but in the opposite direction. So that's when I, they started designing protein from scratch. And I think their very first uh, successful protein, uh, de novo design protein was, was called Top7. Uh, it's designed by uh, Brian Coleman back then when he was a PhD student or either PhD student or a postdoc with David Baker. That was, I think, in early 2000. So historically, like if we go back decades and decades, trying to design proteins was that there were some early successes with, I, I think, was it uh, Crick who, who came up with some yes. kind of rational approaches to design various like filamental proteins. But it seemed like it was kind of difficult, particularly with a kind of rational design approach to design proteins. Mm-hmm. What do you think mm-hmm. have been the main changes that have allowed us to start building all the sorts of proteins and enzymes that we see coming out of the Baker lab and others? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a combination of a better understanding of the physics of protein folding and also the, the ability to, to quickly do predictions in computers. So, you know, with the advancements of um, computer science, uh, we, we have better chips than Crick did back in, you know, in the old days. And you touched on this a little bit before, but when you started on the DNA side, you had to use these thermal cycles to induce an out of equilibrium state so that you could get those changes to actually sort the cargo. And from my understanding of most of what the Baker Lab has done is they've really started with these rigid, super stable proteins mm-hmm. um, that they could design from scratch. And more recently, they've started doing some enzymes and enzyme design. And that, that recent Luciferase paper is really cool. Um, how much more difficult is it to get things like switching of states and allosteri, or is that something that they've already done and I just missed? Yes, yeah, there's a wonderful paper from my friend uh, Robert Langdon and, and Scott Boykin. Uh, it's called Locker. So, so the system is it's kind of like DNA strand displacement. You have a, a domain that is covered by a protein helix, and then when you add a, a peptide that's what's so-called key protein, uh, it has better complementarity to the covered region. So it's going to come in and kick out the thing that's originally covering that, that, that space, and the thing that's been kicked out can now interact with a different protein. Um, so that's the attempt to design allosteric-like function into proteins. And that paper, I think, was published back in 2019. I see. Very cool. But like DNA strand displacement, then, that has essentially, you're running isothermally, but you get a waste product out, right? You have these proteins that have now been activated. Um, Whereas biology is kind of self-refreshing. I guess most of that's through transcription. And the idea here is you could cook this up to a cell, right? And get this continuously produced and run the cycle. Very cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have to say, though, our understanding of uh, protein-protein interaction is not as good as our understanding of DNA, uh, the thermodynamics of DNA interactions. Uh, uh, you know, with the Santa Lucia model, people basically know what's the delta G of binding for different nucleotides, right? We don't have that thing yet for protein-protein interactions. Say, you know, we have a sequence of, say, leucine or isoleucine and a, a opposite so-called maybe complementary uh, sequence that's made of, uh, I don't know, serine or valine. What will be the delta Giovanni for that two sequence? We don't really know. Uh, if we could have better understanding or or better model of such systems, then we could perhaps considerably design the protein version of strand displacement. So on that topic, it kind of feels like trying to predict protein-protein interactions is an incredibly complex task. But do you think we can break it down into some kind of 
local sequence type thing in the same way as we have for DNA? Or is it still going to involve considering long range interactions or or other sorts of complicated interactions between chemical functional groups? Yeah, yeah. So that's actually, um, so my, my PhD thesis was trying to partially answer that question. So um, I was working with this wonderful postdoc, Scott Boykin, and we were trying to design the uh, protein version of DNA watson crick base pairing. So um, our hypothesis back then was that, you know, in DNA, the uh, specificity of AT and GZ base pairing was really mediated by hydrogen bonds. So if we could design protein hydrogen bonds, then perhaps those hydrogen bonds could be the specificity code for protein-protein interactions. Because normally you don't really find those uh, polar but uncharged groups at the protein binding interface. They are, in most cases, they're hydrophobic residues uh, because hydrophobic residues give you binding affinity and they repel water and they like to attract, basically bind to each other, right? So our, our hypothesis back then was if we could install those hydrogen bond network in those hydrophobic environments, then those interactions could you, could possibly give you binding specificity. So Scott wrote this uh, very useful protocol in Rosetta. So Rosetta is the software we use to design proteins um, that will allow you to systematically generate hydrogen bond networks. Then we have millions of designs in computers. We, we sort out the good designs and we test them out uh, by expressing them in E. coli and try to solve the actual structure of those proteins. And to our surprise, there were several cases where we have the, the structure matching almost exactly with our model, even at the hydrogen bond network sites. So, so that gives the confidence that we could design those hydrogen bond networks with atomic accuracy. And so the next step was to see whether those uh, local hydrogen bond networks could you could actually give you binding specificity between different proteins. So we decided to design a set of uh, the so-called heterodimers. So heterodimers are protein complexes where you have two monomers, but they have different sequences. And our task back then was to design a big set of mutually orthogonal heterodimers. Meaning that say you have six pairs, those 12 proteins. If you mix those 12 proteins in a single test tube, what you wanna have ideally was to only have uh, six designed pairs, but no other non-designed and non-specific interactions. And we collaborated with uh, this wonderful collaborator, Wiki Wansoki. Uh, she was a native mass spectrometrist. So what it means is that different from conventional mass spectrometry, which denatures your protein, when you try to detect uh, the, the, the mass of a protein, uh, native mass spectrometry allows you to uh, detect protein complexes without denaturing the proteins. So that could give us uh, information in terms of which two proteins are binding, right? Because we can just read out the mass because you already have the sequence. So depending on whatever molecular weight you get from mass spectrometry, you could back calculate what sequences they come from. Um, so that gives us a way to detect protein-protein interactions in, in, in actually in their native state. So we did this very fun experiment with collaboration with the Wasaki lab, we mixed a set of 16 pairs of proteins. So there's 32 different monomers. Mix everything in test tube. Uh, we denature them so that they are now random coils. And we do dialysis to let them refold into the alpha helical structure. And while they refold, they're going to bind to either the correct binding partner or the incorrect binding partner. 
and we'll send the whole thing over for native message spectrometry to detect what are the uh, compresses that resulted from that uh, denature and renature process. And to our surprise, the results are super clean. Um, out of these 32 by 32 interactions we got, uh, almost four or five off-target interactions, and all other interactions are on-target. So that is um, our first indication that these local hydrogen bond mediated interactions could give you DNA-like specificity in proteins. So is this the same kind of dimerization proteins that you later used when you worked in the Elowitz lab on the protein neural network system, where you had those dimers formed to activate the different species in the systems, or are those a different designed protein dimer? Yeah, so these are actually from the exact same set. Super cool. So I guess that that like leads well into our next question of, you've kind of come at molecular design from the first the DNA perspective, then the single protein perspective, the protein dimer perspective, and finally to the interaction networks. How would you describe the difference in kind of design philosophy between those three different systems? Or is it the same overarching theory of design, no matter which molecule or number of molecules you're working with? Mm, that's a very good question. Yes, so so that's really what I've been experiencing. So I've been, you know, looking back, I've been starting with you know, DNA level design and then to protein level design and to, to currently uh, cell design via protein networks. Um, I would say the design philosophy is rather different so in in the DNA design world, everything is very precise. You know exactly what's going to happen because you have very good models, very good thermodynamic and kinetic models describing what's happening. You will be surprised if your data doesn't match your model. You know, taking a step further at the uh, protein design level, it's not as precise as DNA interactions. So I guess I would say that you will be uh, presently surprised if your design model, if your actual protein structure is exactly the same as your design model. Uh, we, do, we did actually have several failures where our measured observed protein structure is quite different from our model. And uh, we can't really explain it. Well, I wouldn't say that we can't explain it. We just cannot prevent it from happening. Because so in most cases, what happened was a water molecule came in. And the water molecule somehow got its hand onto the actual hydrogen network and messed up the whole network. And we are still not very good at predicting interaction between water molecules and, and protein molecules. So that's, I guess, uh, room for improvement in terms of protein design. And uh, taking a step further onto the, onto the network of protein interactions, um, it's a whole different story. So, so here, you don't really think about the, the actual chemistry or, or, or bonding delta-delta-G for, for different protein interactions. Um, everything can be described roughly with ODEs, right? So you have, you know, different rates for a protein synthesis, protein degradation, and then protein uh, catalysis, you know, KCAT, KN, and protein binding, KON, KOF. So those are things that you would uh, use to describe your model and perhaps to, to, uh, to come up with, a, with different simulations for a system. And over there, my experience was that if you have a good starting uh, toolkit of, of proteins, for example, uh, the designed either the de novo designed proteins or the uh, baroproteases, which have been extensively studied by other people, then the results are actually quite predictable. And that's really our goal is to, to make synthetic biology as uh, predictable and as 
programmable as possible. And you know, the hope would be that one day you could perhaps design a circuit with the same accuracy as, for example, a, a designer DNA origami, right? So you would have a experimental data that matches exactly with your mathematical model. That'll be the dream. Did those rate constants for the ODEs, um, are those kind of known a priorities? Do you have to measure those for every experiment you do? Yeah, so in the uh, neural network work that I did with, uh, with Michael, those rate constants were previously already measured or taken from literature. For example, the protein synthesis rate and protein degradation rate, those were taken from other papers. But the K-on and K-off were already measured, and so K-cat, those were uh, taken from literature. So when you mention kind of your hope for the future that we can design uh, kind of protein circuits and, and related systems with the same confidence as for uh, kind of DNA type systems, is it your opinion that when we're working in a cellular environment, we kind of can't get away from using proteins? Or do you think there might be some possibility that we can um, introduce kind of DNA-based circuits or, or similar um, and, and kind of leverage some of the work that's been done in that area? Yeah, I think we, we should really try very hard to combine the best of both worlds. You know, with, with DNA circuits uh, and also RNA circuits, so there are already RNA-based circuits in, in cells. and and those appear to be quite predictable, right? And and with uh, protein circuits, it's not as predictable as DNA interactions. But like I said before, with the uh, with the neural network, somehow they turn out to be rather predictable. And uh, well, they they have different advantages and disadvantages, right? With DNA circuits, they're very predictable. And those RNA circuits, they're very predictable. But you have to go through that uh, transcription step to make it work. Um, with protein circuits, uh, and also with DNA circuits and also RNA circuits, you have to, especially with uh, transcription-based circuits, you have to integrate the promoter into the genome. So inevitably, you are changing the host genome, right? And with uh, protein circuits, if you could design the whole circuit as a mRNA, then you don't perturb the host genome anymore because it can be transiently expressed in the cells and they can be cleared out very rapidly. So yeah, they have different advantages and disadvantages, and I I agree. Uh, combining them both would uh, would make it perhaps better. So you described that for your protein circuits, you would want it to work in cells. So I wonder if you imagine if there's any use for protein circuit that is for an in vitro environment, or is it mostly the goal is to be used in the cells? Right. Yes. So one thing I could think of is you know could you come up with a protein circuit? that can rapidly recognize a particular, say, antigen or a disease marker in, a, say, a blood sample and amplify the signal and quickly give you a response. Uh, so that would be one use case for a protein circuit. So for example, if you have a kinetically trapped protein circuit that can only be activated upon binding to a certain target antigen, then that would be a, a quick diagnostic tool for certain diseases, right? Right. And so do you imagine um, the protein interaction will have higher specificity or any advantage for that? Uh, versus, say, RNA or DNA-based circuits? Right. Yeah, I would say protein circuits are, I guess the advantage would be that they're more stable. Because, you know, with RNA circuits, RNAs are everywhere, right? They can degrade RNA. And with uh, protein circuits, we could, especially with the help of protein design, we can design those super-stable proteins. And uh, in fact, 
those uh, dimers that we produced back in the Baker Lab, they don't even denature if you heat up to say 90 degrees Celsius. They are basically like rocks. Um, they don't super stable. They don't denature. Why is that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because nature seems to have proteins which denature very readily. Yeah. Yeah, the reason is that uh, whenever we design proteins, so, so Rosetta is really good at minimizing the energy of your design. So so imagine this protein folding funnel, right? So most of our designs are really at the very bottom of the folding energy funnel. So that's why they're super stable. And the disadvantage of that is, uh, like Eric said previously, especially with allosteric, if they are super stable, if they are rock-like, it's going to be very hard to have conformation change those uh, desired proteins. So that would be the one of the disadvantages of having super stable proteins. And you mentioned uh, kind of using proteins kind of ex vivo or in vitro for like diagnostics. And you've also mentioned locker. I believe that, did, did the Baker Lab come up with a kind of locker-based COVID diagnostic? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Where did that go? I, I know I saw some of the early work and it looked promising. Um, did that lead to anything? Right. I think they started a company. Uh, Alfredo was the first author on the paper. And I believe they have a company now trying to utilize uh, locker as a way to diagnose, for example, COVID or other, other diseases. Yeah, that's super promising. I'm also curious about um, protein synthesis for, like, for probably in cell environment, the proteins can be synthesized by cellular components, but for in vitro applications, do you see there's any possibility or benefits to have some kind of commercial companies like IDT, which synthesize DNA? Do you think it will be good or not necessary to have some company to synthesize protein from in a silico-based approach? Ah, you mean uh, synthesizing protein from scratch, like just like the way you synthesize DNA? Right. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I. I think it's gonna be super hard. So so far, I think the the record is uh it's three hundred plus amino acids that people can can think as de novo, but that's going through multiple purification steps. Uh, I'm I'm referring to the chemical synthesis of protein from scratch. Uh, the easier way would perhaps to would be to design uh, to come up with the uh with the plasmids that's encoding the protein sequence, and I have E. coli, you know pumping out those proteins by you know, transforming the plasma into E. coli, and then later on do purification. So that could be, you know, from a commercial standpoint, it's going to be much cheaper than trying to come up with a chemical synthesis of protein from scratch. Yeah, I think um, if I remember right, like the main time when it was necessary to do chemical protein synthesis was designing like chirally opposite proteins. Um, but, but I guess in general, it's kind of not going to be as um, as accurate or efficient as um, kind of using a ribosome. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and also if you specifically want to include modifications, back in my bachelor thesis, we were incorporating modifications into collagen strands and we had to get little peptides synthesized. But it was, you know, you go above 30 amino acids and the peptide synthesis, of course, starts to get mad at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, anyway, one question I had is towards the end of your paper on the neural networks, you, you talk about integrating training into the neural network system. Because mm-hmm. right now it was kind of one shot, the, the weights are set by the concentrations. 
how would do you have any thoughts about how you'd actually implement backpropagation in a biological system, or is this intrinsically a biocomputer hybrid system where the biology carries out the computation, but the uh, training of the network can happen in silico either better, easier, faster than you ever could implement it in at the biological scale? Yeah, right. That that's yeah, that that's exactly what we're trying to work out right now. You know what, um, Eric, what you're de- describing is what we call the human in the loop design, where you have the mammalian cells carrying out neural network computation and a, a human or a computer would, would, would take the, the difference between you know the actual outcome and the desired outcome and you know do backprop. So that's possible uh, to do and that, that's I think uh, much easier than trying to implement actual backprop or other kinds of learning in the cells exclusively on those uh, protein or uh, transcriptional or any kind of network. But I do think that the latter is more desirable if you could actually have the cells learn on their own, right? And in, in, and actually, if you look at biology and if you look at evolution, uh, cells really learn by, it's not really learning, it's rather, I would say, selection. So, you know, uh, with mutations, right, cells will come up with different configurations for network and or different expression levels, different concentrations of the uh, players, uh, di- different proteins or, or different, you know, RNA or DNA molecules. And that to me seems to be a, a a much better way to implement learning. So that's learning via selection. So if you could, co- if you could come up with a million different configurations for your network and just let the selection pressure to give you the optimum set of weights, that'll be, I would say, it's a form of parallel computation, right? So you have, you know, millions of different little cell computers with different setup for neural network working at the same time. And then somehow you end up having the optimal set of weights. This makes a pretty good segue into what you're working on currently. Is this the current focus of your lab or do you have other projects and other visions that you're also working towards as you start your new lab? Yes. So, so that's actually one thing, uh, the thing I described just now was one thing we're working on right now is can you come up with a, a neural network that can be learned via selection? Because one thing we realized was it's really hard to implement backprop at the molecular level because you somehow have to take the derivative and that's super hard. And, and the other direction that we are exploring right now is what kind of uh, new behavior or or what kind of different kinds of outcomes you will get if you have those protein networks working in an artificial cell. Say, uh, what I mean here is that if you have a liposome, that's encoding uh, different components of the proteins. Everything will be encapsulated in the artificial liposome. Could you come up with a much cleaner circuit? So that, that will be, so if you have a minimal circuit, a minimal cell, which is basically a liposome encapsulating all the, all the different plasmids expressing proteins, and they will be you know, expressed at a set rate, and they will be degraded at a set rate. You know their binding constant. Could you fully mathematically describe such a system. And if you could do that, then what it means is that you can now have a way to really tune different parameters and then tune the outcome of a circuit much better. It's going to be a much less uh, noisy system compared to actual cells. I kind of want to go back to the neural network stuff. And it's at this point that I wish I knew a lot more about neurobiology, but my intuition would be that brains do not use backpropagation and that kind of our own neurons kind of use a more local approach. Are there maybe different approaches we could take than kind of 
the traditional learning algorithms from silicon based artificial intelligence and uh, yeah are there different algorithms we could use for a kind of protein based neural network context you mean different kinds of methods for learning yeah which don't require kind of determining gradients or doing gradient descent yeah yeah so um so i was chatting with some of my colleagues the other day you know there's a there's this uh, thing called adaptation in biology right so if you have a, a super stable system meaning that if you perturb the system with a with a small perturbation or or a big perturbation it's going to go back to its original state i would call it perfect adaptation so that's also if you think about it, it's also a, a form of learning right because you know your target that's your the that's the stable state and then uh, no matter how you disturb the system is always going to go back to the original state and I think that's what's exploring uh, if you could if one could uh, try to use that analogy so uh, Mustafa Hamash uh, his lab has been working on this perfect adaptation process and they come up with a network motif called the the antithetic control so what, what they have there was that you have a basically two different molecules that has mutual sequestration and they show that through this process you can have perfect adaptation so if we could use some of their uh, level motifs for the neural network computation then one could considerably have a uh, you know different kind of uh, uh, i would say backprop free way to do learning at the molecular level this is going back to to earlier topics it's kind of remarkable just how often at least from an outside perspective the the proteins you design with tooling like rosetta come out as the design like i know you've mentioned a bunch of failures but also it seems like more often than not they come out with like angstrom precision how accessible do you think the rosetta tool chain is to people who haven't gone in to do kind of a phd or postdoc in protein engineering like when do you think is the time that someone who isn't an expert in protein design can kind of use this tooling to design an arbitrary protein according to an arbitrary specification. Yes, yeah, I think it's becoming uh, much, much more accessible than say ten years ago. So you know, if you, if you dial clock back to ten years ago, you have to learn how to code in Rosetta to do protein design. And now, if you follow this guy uh, Sergey Afchinikov on Twitter, he he's a good friend of mine. He's he's a uh, uh, junior fellow at Harvard, he uh, has a, um, so he has daily updates on his Twitter and he's got those very fancy Google Colab notebooks, which allows you, which allows anyone to design proteins on those Colabs. You just click a few buttons and you'll come up with a protein design that can be tested. And so on that note of testing, um, I know that over the years of the Baker Lab, they really had to start out with massive high throughput experiments and then you'd get a couple of hits of the actual correct structure. And in recent papers, I've seen that number going down and down and down and down and how many they have to try before you get the desired structure or function or whatever. How, how long do you think it is until protein design hits the kind of DNA origami point where non-experts are using it because they need, they need a platform for something else and they can just kind of trust that it'll work if the design was good? Oh, I, I will say that you will always need some, well, unless, Unless people really solve the protein structure prediction problem, then you will always need to test your 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 design before you know having any kind of application. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that unless you are hundred percent sure that the sequence that you have 
would 100% fold onto the actual structure. And the only way for that to happen is that people have cracked the, the, the protein folding problem. Unless that happens, then you will always have to have to test, say, tens or even hundreds of designs to end up having a, a correct, uh, desirable protein structure or a desirable protein function. Do you think it is possible to crack it 100%? Because I know that there are a bunch of proteins in nature that rely on, say, quantum chemistry for their form and function. So to what extent can we crack the protein uh, folding problem without resorting to quantum chemistry simulations? Uh, that is something that I'm not an expert on. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that uh, it's a solvable problem. But there are also papers claiming that this is a, a in the in the language of computer science, it's an NP hard problem, so it cannot be solved in a polynomial time. I mean, I'm optimistic that that we can solve it, but I'm not the expert to to say that we to to assure you that we can solve it. Sure, and I guess also from a non-expert perspective. Maybe the general problem is NP hard, but when we're designing particular proteins, maybe we can restrict to a domain space where it's a lot easier to solve. This reminds me of DNA circuits that sometimes we also need to try different sequences for some DNA circuit to work. And our understanding of DNA secondary structure is also limited, for example, on pseudonotic structure. So we don't need to fully understand it, but to a certain percentage, we can already do a sort of... Um, a lot, of, a lot of different things. So probably for protein circuit design, um, we also don't need to understand to 100%. Maybe a certain percentage will be enough. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Do you ever miss the DNA design world where it's kind of more predictable, a bit easier, or do you enjoy the challenge of protein design? I kind of like, uh, you know, the there's a saying that the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, when they, when I was chatting with um, uh, people from the DNA origami field, you know, people always say that, you know, since you're, the, the things you're doing are so cool because they are so functional. And I always tell them that, you know, the, the things you guys are doing are so cool because they are so predictable. And and my, my efforts was trying to make the system both functional and predictable. And, and that's why we're, you know, having this lab that's working on protein circuitry. And, and the hope is that if you could fully understand your protein module, meaning that if, if the protein modules are de novo designed, then you could perhaps have a better way to describe the system and make it more predictable. Can you talk a little bit about the composition of your lab? Is it all biologists, structural biologists, mathematical modelers? Like what, what's your ratio of people with different expertise working on this problem with you? Let's see, I have, um, so far I've got uh, 14 members. And I would say most of them are good at both, meaning that they're both good at both dry lab and wet lab. I have a few people which are solely focusing on other dry lab or wet lab, and I'm trying to try very hard to, to make them learn the other side of the, the work. Yeah, so that's the current conversation. And I think it's very important to, for the students uh, to actually have skills from, from both ends so that they know exactly what's going on. You know, whenever they're trying to come up with a model, computationally, they can now design experiments to test out their idea, right? And whenever they have experimental data, they know how to further refine their computational model to, you know, up, perhaps uh, update their parameter or, or give the, the network a different architecture to give you a better outcome experimentally. 
So your your lab is quite new. I mean, it's around a year or two、um, at Westlake University. And how is the experience of starting your、uh, new lab? You know, it's um, it's very funny. So in in the very early days, um, I had to really take care of everything. You know, from renovation to 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 purchasing reagents and and hiring. So it was、uh, a bit overwhelming in the beginning, and especially, you know, when I realized that I'm now at the different side of the table. You know, I've, I have to actually be responsible for the survival of my students. Uh, that feels like a lot of responsibility. And later on, I had help from、um, my wonderful lab manager and and my students.、Uh, things started to get back on track in terms of、uh, pumping out scientific data. And now、um, it's really actually、uh, really enjoyable. So I don't really have any admin stuff or, or teaching to do. So all I do every day was chatting with my students and come up with ideas. And yeah, that's the the best part of this job, right? You get to talk to with smart people and come up with good ideas. What's your experience been hiring students? Like, are you selective about who you take? Do you take people who are interested? Like, what's your approach to building out this? At this point, fourteen person lab. Do you have? Let's see. So I um, well, I guess the only criteria that I have、uh, in terms of hiring people was that if he or she is uh curious. And motivated about our field,、um, I don't really have any restriction in terms of his or her scientific background because what we're doing is really interdisciplinary, and we can really use help from different fields. So that's my、uh, my approach in terms of hiring people. You've been kind of around the world, like Singapore, U.S., China. What have you found were the biggest differences between these different places? Yeah, well, in terms of the biggest difference, I would say the most significant difference really the food.、Um, you know, if you, if you go to Singapore and then to 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 the US and then come back to China, you know, it's a it's really a roller coaster in terms of food quality. I mean, nowhere compares with Singapore, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And in in terms of the the research uh, uh, research experience, it, it's all really positive so far,、um, especially at Westlake.、Um, It's very,、um, I would say, it's very internationalized, and really the only thing people care about here is science. So, so we get to have、uh, very good seminars and stimulating interactions with colleagues and visitors. So that's been my experience traveling around. It's really been trying to look for a, a good place to、uh, do what I want with science. So over the course of your career, you've won a number of. Pretty high-profile words: the the Dirks Prize in Molecular Programming and the Forbes 30 Under 30, and the list was very long when we looked it up. H- how has the recognition affected your career trajectory? And do you think those awards matter, or are they just kind of nice things to hang up on your on your wall? Well, let's see. So I I view those rewards as、uh, byproducts of the science that I was trying to do. I would say that they have never been a goal. To to really get this award,、um, my philosophy is that if you do good science, then it doesn't really matter if you get the award or not. You know, the the goal has always been to to do good science. I have another science based question. So, kind of, you've worked with DNA and you've worked with protein, and and obviously they have their pros and cons. But we're kind of working with these because nature uses them, and so we're kind of trying to understand how they work and. How we can modify them for our own purposes, but do you think these are 
the best molecules we can use? Or do you envision that maybe there's another molecule out there that we could design that would kind of be even better than these? Ah, I see. Well, so that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, people are working on uh, different polymers, but I'm not really familiar with that, that field. Um, I know people are trying very hard to work on, you know, DNA protein hybrids. For example, uh, Hendrik Dees, they are trying to use uh, proteins that can bind to DNA to, to have a structured, fully defined uh, protein DNA complex origami thing. And yeah, I think the work that is very interesting because you do get trying because you, you do get the best of both worlds, right? You, you get the programmability of, of DNA interactions, and you also get the, the stability of proteins um, and also functional proteins. But in terms of the the circuit design, I'm having a very hard time uh, envisioning a perhaps a new kind of polymer that would work in a cell and perhaps would work. At the level of a circuit, because the advantage of having, you know, those biological molecules, for example, DNA or protein, is that they are genetically encodable, so you can mass produce them uh, very cheaply, and they can be propagated from one generation to the next. So let's talk about the kind of fun elephant in the room. Um, as Hannah mentioned in the introduction, you fly planes. Can you tell us a little bit about like where you learned to do that and like your favorite places you've flown? Oh, let's see. So, so I learned to fly at Caltech. So Caltech had this uh, wonderful flying club. And so the long version of the story was that I've always wanted to become an astronaut. But I got, you know, I got nearsighted and that automatically disqualifies me from uh, becoming an astronaut. Um, and then well, I guess the backup plan would be to become a pilot. So when I when I came to Caltech for postdoc, I learned that there's this flying club. So, so I joined. And the unfortunate thing was the COVID hit uh, pretty much one or two months after I began training. And the thing got, got delayed quite a bit. And then I finally got my license, I think back in 2020, 2020 yes. So yeah, in terms of the fun places I've been to, um, I've been to the Grand Canyon, and and I have to tell you that the view is actually quite rather different if you uh, go there by car. And I've been to the Catalina Island, and landing there is actually rather challenging because the airport is sitting on top of a cliff. So if you mess up, you would uh, dive into the ocean. And yeah, so those are the fun places I've been trying. So I'm now trying to convert my uh, U.S. pilot license to the uh, to the Chinese version. And the final thing is that I have to go past this the Chinese language test in order to get the license. But the good news is I've already passed that and I'm just waiting for the conversion to complete. That's super exciting. Is there anywhere in China that you're really looking forward to being able to fly? Like the Grand Canyon is obviously a highlight of American geography. Yes. What What are you looking forward to there? You know, I've, well, so, okay. So I've not really looked into that yet because from what I've learned, uh, general aviation in China is rather restricted. So, you know, flying the U.S. is, well, you know, it's land of free, right? So so you can go pretty much wherever you want, uh, different uh, course, different altitude. But flying China, the problem is that you have to fly at this certain course, at this certain altitude. So you cannot really choose a destination. But the, the good news is that there are uh, local flying clubs that have their custom flying path approved and some of the flying path go through some of the scenery spots so i'm looking to that super cool thanks for sharing that 
So in the U.S., when you want to fly, do you need to apply for permission at first? No, you just you literally just hop in the plane and go. So there's no like if you want to land in the airport, how to deal with the conflict with other planes? Oh right, yes, yes. So so I once landed in LAX uh, with my instructor. So landing over a busy international airport can be tricky because you have to get approval from the air traffic control. Um, but if you want to go to a a local airport, for example, Air Monte, that's the airport that I, I fly out. Uh, you just go and you just talk with the uh, tower guy on the frequency. And, and if the airport is not too busy, you just go and land. Cool. So as we get close to our you know time limit here on the podcast, we always like to ask people about their future vision for molecular programming. Like, where do you see us going in 15 years from now? Are we going to have these in-cell diagnostics based on neural networks? Where where, where are we going to get? Yes, ah, that's a very good question. So um, I can see two possible directions. One is that if we can have a, a large enough neural network in a cell that can say simultaneously uh, recognize 10 different inputs or 20 different inputs and be able to classify that input pattern into different categories. For example, whether it's cancer or whether it's disease or whether it's a healthy tissue and perhaps have a way to autonomously update its own weights and then try to adapt to to different input patterns. So that would be uh, one possible direction. And the other which I think is also interesting is can we come up with artificial cells where it will allow us to modularly put different components into the cell so that the cell will be a, a predictable its own little compartment that's carrying out its chemical reaction networks in a very predictable way that's an exciting note for the future thank you so much for joining us Debo. stay tuned to our newsletter or slack for details on our next podcast episodes and thanks for listening